Well, good morning, Freedom Church. Uh, I can't tell you how happy I am to uh, be with you, even if we can't be in the same room together. I know I have surely looked forward to today and having an opportunity just to connect with you, even uh, just through the Internet like this. Uh, I can't remember a week when I have heard uh, so many people say how much they were looking forward to Sunday, even though we could not be physically in the same room. These are are really peculiar times in which we're living. And uh, I don't know that uh, in any of our lifetimes we've ever faced a situation that has caused us to suddenly be so spread out. And I know for many that feels awkward and, and weird, and for some it feels scary. But uh, I just want to encourage you today that uh, none of this has caught God off guard. Uh, these are indeed uh, serious times. But the Lord has a plan to get us through this, and we will get through this together. We'll get through this with God's help. The passage that this weekend has come to my mind again and again is Psalm 46.1. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. You know, there, there are a lot of different people who are speaking into our lives. Some of what they're saying is scary and disturbing. But the bottom line is, it's in times like this that we become most aware of the presence of God and the love of God and how we can really count on God. I, honestly, passages like this can sort of sound like spiritual fluff coming out of our mouths in the good times. It's only when you've been through really difficult seasons that you come to personally discover and know that God truly is our refuge. He is our safe place. He is our strength, and He is the one who gets us through seasons like this. We certainly are in uh, a challenging season, and uh, I, I don't know about you, but I just feel like we're at a place we are hearing so much bad news. And, and honestly, I mean, from a, a science and health perspective, there is a lot of bad news out there. And uh, My heart just feels like we need some encouragement today, and so I hope that you'll be encouraged by the time that we spend in worship and the time that we spend in the Word today. And uh, Each week we do want to spend a little bit of time just uh, sort of catching up on where things stand. And so I'm going to ask a couple of things of you. Uh, for one, right now, if you're tuning in live through Facebook, and, and we would really ask you as much as is possible through this season when we're having to do this on Sunday mornings, if you have Facebook, uh, though we're on multiple platforms, let Facebook be your primary way of, of tuning in because what we would love for you to do in the first part of every service is chime in. If you haven't already done so, I'll ask you to, do, to tell us three things every Sunday morning when you tune in live. Tell us who you are, where you are, and how you're doing. Just in one or two sentences. Say, this is you know, name who's watching and listening, where you're located, whether you're in Baldwin County, another state, or some other country around the globe. And just in a sentence, tell us how you're doing. Do that live for us right now. Don't worry, it's not like talking in church. It, it's okay. You, you, can, you can chime in right now and do that. It's, it gives us a sense of community as to, as to who's tuned in at the moment. And uh, I'm going to ask a favor of you to go one step beyond that. If you will, I would really love to hear from you just a short paragraph. Either you can send it into the church's Facebook or you can email it to me directly, mark at myfreedomchurch.net. You can reach any of our church staff by entering our first names at myfreedomchurch.net. So uh, send me just a little short note. Uh, I'd love to hear from you each week, but um, as John said, each Wednesday we're going to try and post just a real quick update 
that's a, a word of encouragement and also just a word of what Freedom Church is seeing around the globe. I've had opportunities uh, this week to talk with Pastor Isaiah and get a glimpse of things in Nigeria, and they are very, very concerned in Nigeria, and we certainly need to be lifting them up. They're facing many of the same things that we are in the United States, that uh, worship gatherings and public gatherings are being locked down as of this week. They are much more densely packed in that little country of 200 million people, and they do not have a health care system to back that up, anything like we do. So they are very concerned about what they're looking at. Remember our brothers and sisters around the globe, but particularly in Nigeria. Remember our new, what's going to be our new Freedom uh, Church pastor in Nigeria, Samuel, and his family as they're facing this crisis there. Um, I'll, I'll give one shout-out to uh, one of our groups that normally would be filling the third row uh, in the building on Sunday mornings. I call them our glory row crowd. Uh, it's, it's our uh, members from the Rainbow Plantation RV Park. Uh, I got an update from Jay and Heidi yesterday that they're doing well, but that they would be setting up their TV on the picnic table outside so that Chuck and Jan and Pam and Karen and all the rest of that row that live in that RV park could sit at a safe, safe social distancing distance from one another, but to be able to worship together and tune in. So to all of you guys, uh, we are glad to have you tuned in. We love you, and uh, we've got people around the county and around the globe who, who tune in. And we want you to know that you are loved and you are prayed for, and we stand together as we move through this season. I want us to pause and before we turn our attention to the Word, to, uh, to just pray for one another and to pray for the world. There are things that we can do to certainly help in the face of this crisis in terms of our behavior, and I'll, I'll touch on some of those. But um, above everything else, we need to stand and, and trust in God and call on God because He loves to heal. He loves to save the day. He, he's good at that. He is the Savior of the world. And so would you join me in prayer? Prayer is never a spectator sport. We do this together. So would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? Father God, you are good at all times in all your ways. You are a good, good Father. And in this season when so many people's lives are in peril, so many people are being put in harm's way because of this outbreak, we call on you and we ask you, to please pour out grace and mercy on us. Lord, we pray for those around the globe who are sick today. They're sick with a disease that we have no cure for. But you love to heal. And so we ask you to do that thing that is a part of your nature. Would you heal the sick? And we don't care how you do it. We, we don't care if you just speak the words and make it happen. We don't care if you give a vaccination or if you give medicinal treatments for this, but in whatever way you want to move, we ask you, O oh God, to heal the sick. Lord, we pray for those who are standing in the gap, doctors and nurses who are treating the sick and they're in danger. Lord, would you protect them? Would you protect people who are having to work in grocery stores and in pharmacies and in these places that they'll have to stay open through this season? Oh, God, would you spare them? Would you protect them? And, God, I pray for Freedom Church and all the different points around the country and around the globe where, where people connect to Freedom Church. I pray your protection 
over each of us and our families and our households. Lord, you, you love your children. And as much as we want to protect our children, you, you long even more to protect us. Your word says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it, and they are safe. We ask, O oh God, that you would allow us to run to you and find safety. We trust you. We depend on you. Holy Spirit, you do a work that only you can do that will bring glory to the Father and the Son. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, we turn our attention to the Word this morning. And uh, if maybe you have not been tuned in or you haven't been a part of, of worship with us in the last few weeks, I'll tell you that we're in a series in the book of Genesis. If you've got your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. And I will say this, uh, honestly, when I created the title for this series, I was not trying to make a joke or a pun. The name of the series is, It Starts With Just One. When I set out to, to plan this series two months ago, I was not thinking about an epidemic. I was thinking about how great moves of God always start with one man or one woman and how that becomes contagious in nature, that, that a passion for God and a move of the Spirit of God passes from person to person very rapidly, but it always starts with one. And it's just uh, ironic how this parallels with uh, how an epidemic spreads as well. So we're not talking about the epidemic when we say it starts with just one, but today I'm going to be sharing a message with you that is entitled, Wouldn't It Be Much Easier If? Let's be honest, all of us would rather life be an easy path. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, I sure like it better when it's smooth sailing and things just, they're just easier. And there certainly are those seasons in our lives where nobody's really sick and the income is stable and there are no big surprises. I mean, don't you just love those seasons? We all like for life to be easier. There's nothing wrong with that. That's human nature. But it can really be a problem when we're faced with choices and we make our choices based on always just wanting, make, to wanting to make our lives as easy and as comfortable as they can be. Because we all know the truth of the matter is many times the right path isn't the easy path. And so we're going to look at a story today that becomes a good reminder of, of how much we tend to want to go down the easy road but how there are pitfalls we have to watch for and avoid. And I'll just tell you, today's message is going to be kind of a countdown message, a 3-2-1. I'm going to share with you from the story three pitfalls that we have to avoid, and then two encouraging words from the Lord, and then one final question from Jesus for us. And so if you'll read along with me in Genesis 16, that we're going to be reading about four primary characters, Abram and Sarah. They're going to be renamed Abraham and Sarah. And uh, Hagar, their servant, their slave, and the Lord Jesus becomes the fourth character in this story. In verse 1, we read, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, that's a curveball right there. I have a feeling Abraham did not see that one coming. Sarah initiates this. We read on, Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Six little words, and how much of history has been defined by those six words. 
how many wars have been fought between the Jews and the Arabs because of those little six, six little words that Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Verse 3, so after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Now, it's interesting that Sarah didn't just give permission for Abraham to sleep with their slave girl, but she wanted Abraham to make her his second wife. That's a really weird piece in this. But when he did exactly what she said, and he took her as his wife, and she became pregnant, suddenly everything began to change in a very predictable way. How much of a shock is it that this doesn't work well? How, how long would you have to think about it if somebody said, now if a man had a wife and then he got another wife and they all tried to just live together happily, how well is that going to work? It doesn't work. It didn't work for them. And what happened was Hagar got pregnant and she started thinking, you know, I'm no longer just a slave. I'm now a wife. I, I really am in a much better place in life, but my life would be so much better. It would be so much easier if this old woman, Sarah, was out of the way. And she begins to despise her mistress, who is her, her master. And now things get really heated up. So Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. Don't you love that? We love to blame, don't we? She's the one who suggested it. Now she's looking at her husband going, you know you caused this. You slept with this woman. Forget that I told you to. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. Now catch how far Sarah goes with this. May the Lord judge between you and me. You, you can tell by the time she gets to that line, they've been fighting about this. They've been fighting about whose fault this is. It's total chaos in their marriage. It's total chaos in their home. Everybody is mad at everybody, and Sarah pulls the God card. Don't you love it in an argument when somebody pulls the God card? You know, when you say, well, God told me this. Nobody can argue with that. Now you've, you've thrown the God card. Well, Sarah is throwing the God card. May God judge between you and me and show us both how right I am and how wrong you are. How wrong you were to sleep with this woman. So she's thrown down the God card. And Abram, we're waiting, the father of the faith. Surely he's going to have a wise, thoughtful response. I mean, he is 85 years old. The father of the faith. And Abram courageously says... Your slave is in your own hands. Do with her whatever you think is best. That's about as cowardly a move as a man could possibly make. Honey, whatever you think. I, I picture Ray Barone from everybody who loves Raymond, you know, just the milk toast man. Abram is playing that part all of a sudden. Well, honey, she's your slave. You just do whatever you think best. And that's exactly what she did. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar to the extent, to, to the extent that she fled from her. Hagar runs away. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. It's the first appearance, I think, the very first appearance in Scripture of th this sort of mysterious character, the angel of the Lord. Don't be confused by this. We're pretty certain that this is the Lord Jesus himself. When you read what he says, it, it basically has to be Jesus because only God can say what what he says, sometimes we'll get hung up on that word angel in scriptures because 
we always imagine this order of beings that God created that, that serve him. They're, they're different from human beings. And there are many times when in Scripture we, we read the word angel that it refers to them. But the word in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, it just means messenger. So there will be different times where people are referred to as angels. It doesn't mean they have wings or that they, they have superpowers. It means that they're messengers of God. And in this case, the messenger from God the Father is Jesus. And there are multiple times in the Old Testament where Jesus comes and appears as a man on earth. And he's referred to as the angel of the Lord. So Jesus shows up. The angel of the Lord found Hagar on the road to Egypt. Remember, she's an Egyptian slave. She's been bought by Abraham and Sarah when they took this detour, they weren't supposed to take to Egypt, and she's been brought back with him. And so it appears she's running back to her roots, the only place she knows, back to, to Egypt. And Jesus, the, the angel of the Lord, said to her, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? Tony, that's got to be inspiration for a song for somebody there. Where have you come from and where are you going? We'll get back to that question. She, she answered, I am running away from my mistress, Sarah. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. That is not what she was wanting to hear. But then the angel added this wonderful prophetic word. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. And you shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your misery. That name, Ishmael, means the Lord hears. And he will, build, he will be a wild donkey of a man. Wouldn't you love that prophecy to be spoken over your child when you're an expecting mom? Your child is going to be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. This is a foreshadowing of the now centuries and centuries long conflict between the Arabic peoples and the Jewish people and quite honestly many of the Arab nations with the world and it is the heritage of Ishmael and she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her Hagar has the distinction in the scripture she is the only person who ever renamed God on the spot she gave to the Lord the name she, she says you are the God who sees me for she said I have now seen the one who sees me. And that is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Barad. The, the, the name of the well means the, the living God who sees me. This wonderful declaration. Hagar feels so cut off, so alone, and so frustrated. And the thing that spoke to her heart the most was in the middle of the most terrible situation of her life. I mean, think about it. She's pregnant. She's away from her home country. Now she's cut off from the family that was supposed to take care of her. She feels so alone like nobody cares. And in this moment of time, she discovers God sees me and God cares about me. And that's a word of encouragement for us today. Wherever you are and whatever you're going through, the Lord sees you. He goes on to say in verse 15, So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son that she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Just a quick recap of the story. Abraham and Sarah have been 10 years in this land now. They've endured a famine. They've endured this detour to Egypt. They've now been a decade. They were 75. Abraham was 75 and Sarah was 65 when they showed up. 
Now it's a decade later. The thing that Sarah has longed for in her life for so many years is that she would have a child, and particularly a boy child. In the ancient Near East, it was kind of a disgrace for a woman not to be able to have a child, for a man to not have a son, to not have an heir. And it almost, in some ways, was this weird paradox of it gave hope, but it was also almost like salt in a wound that God appears to Abraham and and promises all these things to him, including the fact that you're going to be the father of a great nation. Well, you've got to have kids for that to happen. And here he is, an old man. And so for probably for a season they had some hope, but now here they are, 85 and 75, still no kids, and Sarah is, is just becoming hopeless and bitter, and she's thinking, the promise of God does not apply to me. Maybe there's some other way God can work it out, but God's promises don't apply to me. And so she comes up with a plan. Wouldn't it be much easier if I could help God? Wouldn't it be easier if we could find a younger woman to be a surrogate. And that'll be how we come up with children, descendants, and God could make a nation out of that. We'll help God's plan along. And so here she, she brings in the slave girl. And now all this chaos ensues because Abraham goes along with this. And, and now here we are, thousands of years later, wars still being fought, so much hostility because of all of this compromise. So just a quick quick rewind we'll begin with the three common pitfalls on the easier road of life that we need to make sure that we avoid, that we learn from this. And by the way, it's worth noting this. In other religious writings and ancient writings, the main characters of, of these fictional accounts, they, they just are like superheroes. We only hear the best about these characters. Part of what has the absolute ring of truth when we read the scriptures because it's not a fictional account. It's a true account of what God did and and what happened in people's lives. Part of the, the ring of truth in these is even in the greatest heroes of our faith, we see the weaknesses and the character flaws. They're presented honestly. God wants us to see the strengths and the weaknesses so that we learn from both because, quite honestly, we, we relate more easily to people's failures and struggles more than we do their victories. And so... Abraham, the great father of the faith, is a man who has many flaws. And we we see flaws in both Abram, Sarah, as well as in Hagar in this story. So we want to learn from those today, looking first at the pitfalls that we see through their lives. And the first one is this, that it is a trap to blame God for our difficulties. You see who does this in the story, don't you? It's Sarah. From the get-go, in chapter 16, Sarah is so frustrated, she begins by saying, you know, it's God who's kept me from getting pregnant. Ultimately, the reason that we don't have any kids, it's because of God. I don't know if he hates me. I don't know if he's mad at me. I don't know what his deal is, but God is the one who has caused this. Have you ever gotten to a place in your life where you were so frustrated about something that at some level you started blaming God for it? I think we probably all do in some ways. Things that we, we... need changed things that we need improved and we pray about it and we're trusting god for it and it doesn't happen and so it must be god's fault that we're in the place that we're in now and that's a trap in fact it's a trap that satan wants every one of us to fall into because satan wants you to believe that whatever difficulty you're facing that god either caused it directly or indirectly he either made it happen or he let it happen and now he's not doing anything about it to remedy it so 
It's all about the same thing. And ultimately, you can't trust him. Don't believe the message that God loves you. See, if he loved you, he'd do something about this. You'll fall in the same trap that Sarah was in. And here's the real catch in that trap. If God is responsible for whatever difficulty I'm facing, then I can't be held accountable for how I respond. That's where we go in our minds, isn't it? If I get so frustrated over what I'm going through, and I feel like, well, God, I've asked you again and again and again to help this, to, to get me out of this financial hole, to get me out of this bad situation. God, I prayed that you'd bring me a, a wife. I prayed that you'd bring me a husband, and it hasn't happened. I, I've asked you to do this. God, we've prayed for a child. You didn't give us a child. I, I, I've prayed for a better job, and it didn't happen. I prayed, God, that you'd make my husband a better man, and he's not any better. I prayed that you'd save him, and he isn't saved. Whatever the thing is that's causing difficulty in our lives, when God doesn't fix it the way that we expected him to, we get frustrated and if we blame him, if it's his fault, we suddenly start feeling like, well, if God doesn't care about me, then I'm not worried what God thinks about what I do. I can't be held responsible for how I respond to this. And at that point, we can do anything that's out of bounds. That means if I'm frustrated because I couldn't find a husband or a wife, then I no longer have to worry about whether that person's a Christian. God didn't supply what I needed, so now I'll do it on my own terms. I'll just go find a pagan and I'll, I'll marry them. I'll make a baby however I have to to make a baby. I'll do whatever I have to do to get what I want. And that's exactly what Sarah does, isn't it? Well, we couldn't get a child. We're tired of waiting on God. We'll just help the process along. We'll, we'll just cross some lines. Abram, you sleep with our slave girl and we'll get a child that way. It would be so much easier if it's always a trap to blame God for anything bad or difficult that comes in our lives. And let's just be honest about our current situation. The whole globe is facing a pandemic. Everybody's life is being interrupted. Today it's inconvenient. In the very new future, it's going to be way more than inconvenient. And maybe you're not there yet, but there will be a lot of people in the near future who at some level in their minds are going to go to the place of blaming God for what's going on. If God didn't cause it, well, maybe he didn't cause it, but he hasn't stopped it. So I can still hold him responsible. And when you go there in your minds, it puts you at a dangerous place of no longer trusting that God is faithful, that he's loving, that he cares about you. And suddenly we'll start thinking and acting in ways that are horribly irresponsible. It is a trap to blame God for our difficulties. God is ultimately the one who brings good gifts into our lives. He is a father. He is the author of everything good that comes our way. God didn't cause this disease. And God does care about what's going on. He's the one who in the middle of all of this bad is going to find a, a multitude of, of good things to come out of this. He's already working good out of this. Second trap to avoid is this. It's a cop-out to let someone else make moral choices for us. Now, that's the easier path, isn't it? Isn't it much easier to just let the people around you determine what's right and wrong for you? I mean, it certainly was when you were growing up and in school, wasn't it? Just go along with the crowd. Go with the flow. Let them determine what's okay and what's not okay. And as long as you do that, it's, it's an easy path to be popular and to fit in. It's not that different when you become an adult. It's really, really easy to let the culture 
or whoever you're closest to determine what's right or wrong for you. And that's a trap. Sarah told Abram, it's okay. Go ahead. Have sexual relations with my slave girl. And Abram did what Sarah said. Abram had sexual relations with Hagar. That is a weird twist in the story, isn't it? First of all, that a wife would get frustrated enough and desperate enough that she would invite her husband to go have sex with another woman. And then here's old Abram. God bless him. Can't you just picture him trying to keep a straight face when she first says this? Well, honey, that's a lot you're asking of me, but I guess I'm willing to take one for the team. I guess I'm willing to go to that length because I love you so much that I'm going to be willing to sleep with another woman just to make you happy. As if permission from Sarah makes it morally right for him to do this thing. It's a crazy world we live in today where if you let other people decide what's okay, you'll go to really bad places because we live in a world that's very comfortable in telling us that wrong is right and right is wrong. I hate even admitting this, but it's just the truth. Our community right here, Fairhope, has a reputation for something that no community should ever have a reputation for. Do you realize that there is a swinger subculture in our community? And, And at some level, church people would never acknowledge this in church. But at some level, there's something about that lifestyle that is appealing to to a lot of people, to good people. The thought of, what would it be like to have an open marriage where a wife tells a husband, it's okay for you to have relationships with other people if you let me do the same thing, but we'll still love each other and be committed to each other. Surely that's okay as long as everybody's a consenting adult and we give each other permission. And the insanity is how many people are willing to live like this, even in our community. And then we give it these, these sweet little names of it's just an open marriage. It, it, they're just swingers. That sounds kind of cool. It's insanity. It's a path toward pain, destruction, divorce, and misery. It's nothing less than that. Because at the end of the day, a wife doesn't give her, get to give her husband permission as to what's moral and immoral. A husband doesn't get to do that for their wife. Friends don't get to do that for one another. We don't answer to one another in that way. We answer to God alone. We all have to stand before God and give an account for how we've lived our lives. And it's always a, a cop-out to just go, well, if everybody else is doing it. I mean, the law now says it's okay. The government said it's okay. They've legalized this, so it must be okay. The government does not get to determine what's moral. Spouses, friends don't get to determine this. God alone determines right and wrong, and it's a cop-out for us to choose the easy path of going with what somebody else has said is okay for us to do. There's a third trap we learn from this story that we need to avoid, and that is that it is cruel and cowardly to ignore the harm that we do to others. Abraham chose the easy path. His wife was mad, and she's making an appeal to Abraham, and apparently it's a pretty hot appeal that... I mean, very hostile. You're going to have to choose. You're going to have to choose between us. And may God choose between you and me to show you that I'm right. Abram's already dishonored his wife and his servant by what he's done. And you would hope that in this situation he would stand up and say, 
we've got to do the right thing. By our choices, by our bad choices, she's put in a very precarious position. We'd better do what we can to take care of her and this child. But instead, he just goes, whatever you think, honey, just do whatever feels best to you. And I'll tell you what felt best to a woman who felt scorned. You know what people say about that? Held hath no fury like a woman scorned. That's how Sarah's feeling in this moment. And she unleashed all the fury of hell on Hagar. And Hagar, she felt the pain and the weight of this. And as a result, she runs away. It's just easier to ignore the people that we hurt in life. It's easier to ignore them while we're doing it. And it's easier to ignore them after the fact. When the right thing to do as a follower of Christ is to seek to make amends when we've hurt people, to take responsibility and to bring justice where we've been a party to injustice, that's the right thing to do. But that's the harder thing to do, isn't it? It's always harder to go back and own when we've done something wrong. How about taking it a step further? How about owning in advance? Hey, this course that we're on, it's the wrong way to go. We can't go down that road. We can't just take the easy path. Now, church, what I'm about to say is probably going to frustrate some people and it may even make some people mad. That's not my intention, but I'm going to shoot straight with you. We are at a crossroads. We are at a critical juncture in history, and I don't mean this century I mean, today, we are at a critical point in time where your actions and my actions will impact multitudes of other people. I know you've been given all kinds of messages about how serious or not serious our current situation is with this pandemic that we're dealing with. But I'm here to tell you, this is a crisis the likes of which the world has not faced since World War II. There has not been a time, not even 9-11, there has not been a time in the past 75 years in world history that has been as grim and as sobering as what we're currently facing. We shot a video just an hour before the service and and just posted it online. I want to encourage you after we're done, if you haven't already viewed it, to go back and watch it. It's about eight minutes long, and it helps to try and put a face on how serious the situation is that we're currently facing. I'm going to summarize it real simply by saying this. The math part of the equation of what we're looking at right now, because right now I'm hearing the same thing that that you're hearing. We, We, at least here in Baldwin County, are living among a multitude of people who are essentially going about life as if nothing really big is going on. And that when you ask people why, the appeal and the reply is, well, it's just not that many people. It's just so few people. I mean, how can this really be that big of a deal when it's not that many people? Here's the thing you need to understand about how many people are currently being affected and how many are going to be affected. If you do the math on how rapidly this thing is progressing, we currently are up to the place that today will cross the threshold where one one one-hundredth of one percent of the American population has been documented to have this disease. That's why people are blowing it off going, this can't be a big deal. Not that many people are affected. That's a critical number. Today is the, is the magic day in the line that I'm fixing a name for you. If you chart out any epidemic, any, it's, just, it's a math equation. If you started with two people coming into America with this disease in January, and if you chart how many times that has to double until 
the whole population of the country is infested with this disease, 330 million people. It has to happen 28 times. It has to double 28 times. Today is the day that we cross the threshold that it has doubled 14 times. We are one halfway to everybody in America having this disease. Now, some of you are looking at that going, wait, that doesn't make any sense. One ten-thousandth of the population having it means we're halfway there? That's exactly right. That is the precise math. Today, it'll be this afternoon when we've crossed that threshold, that we are halfway there. It has doubled 14 times in two months. When it doubles 14 more times, more than 330 million will have it in North America. All of America will be saturated. My point simply is this. Oh, by the way, if the current death rate doubles along with infestation rate, that'll be 5.8 million people dead in two months' time. My point is very simple. It is a grave situation that we face, and our action or inaction will cause other people to get sick. It will cause other people to die if we don't choose well. And it is the easier path to always just go about life as normal. It's far easier for you to go out to eat today. It's far easier for you to run to the store, just like you've always run to the store, for you to go to work. It's going to be inconvenient for people to say, I can't continue to go to work. For the good of the whole community, for the good of the world, I'm going to have to isolate. I'm going to have to live my life at home with my family. And for some number of weeks, I'm going to be terribly inconvenienced. The right thing in life is often very inconvenient. But it is cowardly and cruel to live life with no regard for others that we hurt. And it is cowardly and cruel for us to say, those of us who are essentially healthy, to say, I'm young, I'm healthy, and I'm not afraid of this. I'll take my chances. I had a good friend who responded well to that thought. I have a pastor friend who told me this week, he got invited to a gathering of pastors. He said, I thought it was being, I was being asked to four or five pastors getting together to just talk about how do we respond to the community in, in dealing with this crisis, and he said, I got there, and I was completely caught off guard because it was like 25 people, and they're all shaking hands and six inches from each other, and he said, I was just so shocked by how everybody's just doing everything the way that they normally would, and, and somebody came up you know, right in his face and trying to shake his hand, and he was like, you know, I'm trying to do what we've been asked to do of you know, not doing the physical touch and, and keeping my distance and the guy just got real confrontational like you know why aren't you trusting god why you know i'm and and the guy finally just got in my friend's face just right up in his face and said i'm not afraid and my friend responded appropriately he said it's not about you and he looked at the rest of the guys and said i'm sorry email me if there's some way that i can help but i'm out and he walked away, which was the right thing to do. It wasn't the easy thing to do, but it was the right thing to do. And his message was the right message. It's not about just you. Your decision about whether or not you'll go through your daily routine isn't just about whether you're willing to take the chance. There are some issues in life where we have to decide my choices impact other people. I've got to do the right thing. And right now, it's such a bizarre thing that it is a moral decision to be inconvenienced and stay home. And yet that will save countless lives. I'm fixing to climb off my soapbox. And as I said, I know some people 
will be bothered or offended. Some people are saying, well, you're doing more harm to the economy than you are to anything else by communicating this message. Friends, it's time for us to quit worrying about the bottom line and start being concerned about people. People matter more than money. The economy will recover, whether it takes a few months or a few years. The American economy has survived a civil war. It has survived multiple world wars. It has survived famine. It has survived multiple depressions and recessions. The American economy will recover. You can restore the economy, but we're not going to raise all the debt. So let's do the right things. And right now, the right thing is to distance ourselves from each other, to check on each other, but to live at home and to avoid these things that are so convenient for now. Three pitfalls to avoid. Two powerful lessons that we learn from this story about God's love. And the first one is this, that God's grace can turn our biggest mistakes into blessings. That's great news. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that news. I think a lot of us would look at Abraham's story and go, why in the world would God use a guy like that? I mean, when you go through, it's kind of like the story of David. These two characters are so similar because the scriptures tell us so much about their lives. And it seems like half of what we learn is really a little scary. There were major flaws. And yet God intended for us to see that about them because God isn't looking for perfect people. God isn't looking for great people. God is looking for ordinary people through whom he can do a great work. He gets the most glory when he takes a broken life and he transforms them over time and does something wonderful through them to the extent that the world looks and goes, man, that must have been the hand of God to do something great through him or through her. Abraham's life is an example of this, and we need this encouragement because most of us, myself included, feel like our mistakes and our failures are going to limit what God could ever do through us. And the, the incredible good news in this story is that God can take even our failures to work good things and bring about great blessings. I mean, Abram has made this huge compromise in sleeping with a slave girl, and out of that, God's going to create a vast nation, multiple nations of descendants. Hagar was making a bad mistake. She was not only party to what happened that this child was conceived out of, but then she broke away from the family that God put her with and tried to run away from that. And even in the midst of Hagar's mistakes and Hagar's terrible mistake of rebelling against her mistress and getting a bad attitude and helping to cause all of this strife, in spite of that, God is going to turn these mistakes into a big blessing. But in the coming to that, in getting to the blessing, something had to happen. And nobody wants to, to hear what had to happen. It's what Jesus said to, to Hagar. In order for this to happen, you've got to return to your mistress and submit to her authority. What would have happened if she had not done that? We'd have never heard from her again. History would have forgotten her. History would have forgotten her child. Chances are they would have died. Good chance the child would have never been born. In order to experience the blessing that's going to come out of this mistake, she had to hear from Jesus. It's a big part of why Jesus showed up. It was to affirm her, but it was to redirect her. It's like he's saying, gently, honey, I know you're hurting. I see you. I feel your pain. But if you keep going down the road that you're on, it's not going to end well. 
you're going to have to turn around and go back to your mistress. Yeah, I know you're mad at her. I know she's been mean to you. you still got to go back and submit to her. That's the line nobody wants to hear. We all hate that word, don't we? Submit. I mean, especially in the West. I want to be large and in charge. I want to be the captain of my own destiny. And Jesus has a call for every one of us. If you want to see your life be all that it's supposed to be, if you want to see your mistakes transformed into blessings, you're going to have to submit to authority. We hate this. It's the reason so many people are squirming over the last point that I just made in the sermon. The whole thing about staying at home. We're like, you can't tell me to do that. The government at every level... Doctors, those in authority, they've been telling us, stay home. You've got to stay home. It's the only way to stop the spread of this virus. And you know what Americans' responses have been? You can't tell me what to do. We're like a bunch of five-year-olds across the country. It's just how we live our lives. I'm an American. You can't tell me to stay at home. You can't tell me I can't go out to eat. Whatever the issue is, that tends to be our attitude. You can't tell me what to do. The truth of the matter is, the pathway to so much of the blessing that God has for our lives is we have to choose to submit to God and to the authorities that he places in our lives. By the way, when multiple levels of authority are giving us the same message, when the government and the church are speaking the same message, you probably ought to really listen closely to those messages because it's not real often that those line up very well. God's grace can turn our biggest mistakes into big blessings. God ends up saying... In uh, chapter 21, verse 13, to Abram, I will make the son of this slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. That is mind-boggling to realize God loved Abram so much that the blessing just goes on. The second thing that's the good news in this is that God's greatest plans for us often prevail in spite of our failures, even our gigantic moral failures. This is about destiny. Do you realize that God has a destiny for your life? There are things that God is going to do regardless. There are things that God is going to do in the world. In fact, our opportunities for greatness are are all about connecting with what God is doing in the world. But the really mind-blowing thing to me is God has a destiny for how he's going to use you, how he's going to impact others through you. Now, I'm not saying that that your choices have no impact on the outcome of your life. Certainly they do. And it is possible for you to make choices that will short-circuit God's parts of God's destiny for your life. The biggest one being if you reject Jesus. If you refuse to ever submit to Jesus, you're going to miss out on the biggest part of what God destined for your life. But as a child of God, it's comforting to know that even though I'm going to make terrible mistakes, I'm going to make poor judgments, I'm going to come up short at times, But ultimately, God's destiny for my life is going to be fulfilled. I could spend the rest of our time together naming off for you the major failures in Abraham's life. And yet, when it's all said and done, the things that God declared over Abraham, they're all going to come true. Why? Because Abraham was such a great guy? No, because God is such a great God. And what's God doing anyway? I mean, ultimately, is it about making Abraham a great person? Nope. What's happening here? God is saving the world. The final of the six promises to Abraham is, and all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you and your descendants. He's going to send a Savior 
He's going to give the scriptures. He's going to save the world. And that's what he's doing. And at the end of the day, you want to see your destiny fulfilled? You get connected to what God is doing to save the world and watch it happen. The enemy's going to tell you, there's so little God could do through somebody like you. You didn't ever do all this you should have done in school, and you've had all these failures, and you've never really gone anywhere with your life. Those things aren't going to limit God. He's already spoken over you what he's going to do. Philippians 1.6 says this, God is the one who began this good work in you, and I am certain that he won't stop before it is complete. God accomplished in Abraham and Sarah's lives what he set out to do, and he's going to do it in your life. The beginning of Genesis 21, God fulfilled his promise. In spite of Abraham and Sarah's lack of faith and their compromises, it says in Genesis 21, 1, the Lord cared for Sarah and he, as he had said, and he did for her what he had promised. And Sarah became pregnant and gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. And everything happened at the time that God said it would. And Abraham named his son Isaac. God is faithful. In spite of our struggles and and setbacks, God's plans prevail. Well, here's the one. You said it was three, two, one. Here's the one final question in the story. It's a great question from Jesus that he asked of Hagar, but it's a great question for all of us. It says in uh, seven, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 16, The angel of the Lord found Hagar and said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? We might ask that same question a slightly different way. What's the road that you've been taking, and what's the road that you'll take going forward? I would suggest to you that most of us, if we're living by our instincts, we take the road, and for some, we've been taking the road of what's convenient and what's pragmatic. I'm going to do what's easiest or what works best or whatever benefits me the most. That, that, that's the road that's all about me taking care of me. If we live by that plan, America's going to be in a mess in the next couple of months. If you live your life by that plan, you can rest assured it won't go far and it won't amount to much. Jesus asked the question, where have you come from? And where are you going? Some of us, when we look back to where we've come from, some aren't real proud of our past. The good news is this, your future doesn't need to be determined by your past. You need to know where you've come from. You need to learn from your past, but your future need not be driven by your past. The kind of question that Jesus is asking is a question that's designed to redirect a life. Hagar is running from the place that God wanted her to be, and she's running back to her past. She's running back to Egypt. She was a pagan living in a pagan land, and God pulled her out of that just a few years before. God had delivered her out of that. And for a few years, she lived with the people of God, and she was taught about the true God, and her life is being transformed, and it looked like this is going to have a great ending. But there came a crucial moment where she ran away from that, and she is now back on the road leading back to a pagan land and a pagan life, and that is where she is headed. And Jesus is saying, I love you too much to let you go back to that. Stop. Consider where you've been, and tell me today, where are you going? Friends, that's the question for the day. 
Yeah, half of it's where have you been? Some of you, your story may look just like Hagar's. We, we all, at some point in the past, were cut off from God. Some of you know what it's like to live a, a, a life very far from God, but to come into a place like Hagar did of coming into the family of God and learning to be a different person. But for some, your story's like Hagar's. After a season of that, you've departed from that, and you're quickly returning to an old way of life. And Jesus is stepping in today saying, oh, hold on, wait. Where have you come from and where are you going? It was Jesus' invitation to Hagar, turn around. It's time to go in a new direction, a direction that is not about you. It's not about you. It's about God and what he's doing and his plan in the world and for your life. Where's your life headed? What's it all about? I mean, I know right now, I know what our lives are, are spinning around, what our, what our thoughts are, are, are spinning all around. And if God is not at the center of that, then this is a very frightening and overwhelming season. But if the path that you're on today is one where whatever else happens, the path that I'm on is chasing after God, chasing after what God has for me, what God is calling me to do, knowing God, loving God, loving people in His name, then whatever else happens, it's going to be okay. God's going to get glory through my life. But Jesus has to once again be the center of our lives, of, of our attention. I mean, honestly, the biggest question in my life right now is, God, what are you wanting to say and do in the middle of the chaos that we're living in? Because I want my life to be centered on you. I, I want to be a help to the people who are around me. But in the middle of all that, God, I want to serve you. I want to know you. I want to know what you're saying and doing in our world. And I want us to be responsive to that. Is Jesus the center of your life today? If he's not, would you let today be a turning point just like it was for Hagar? Would you hear the voice of Jesus asking, where have you come from and where are you going? And would you choose to get off the easy road, the convenient road, and just get on the road that points toward Christ and his glory? Would you join me right now as we pray together, wherever you're located, would you just bow your head with me as we turn to him in prayer? God, we tend to be naturally so self-centered. It's easy for us to want to be in control of our lives and to blame you for the things that don't look like they're supposed to look. Forgive us for the times and ways that we've done that. Forgive us for the times that we've run away from you. Or please forgive us for the times where we've blamed you for things that you didn't do. We ask your forgiveness, and Lord, together we just say to you, we choose to trust you. We believe that you're good. We know that you're good. You've shown us in our lives and throughout history that you are a good, good father. And we choose to put our trust in you today. If you have never before placed your faith in Jesus, that what he did on the cross, dying and rising again, that it paid for your sin, makes you a part of the family of God, would you do that today by just simply praying in faith, Jesus, I need you, I trust you, I ask you to forgive my sins, to come into my life, to take control and change me. 
Thank you for loving and saving me. Maybe you're a Christian and you've just wandered off the path and you're on the wrong road, but today needs to be a turning point. Would you just turn back to him today and say, Oh God, I give you control of my life. It's not about me. I want my life to be about you, your plan, and your glory. Father, I pray that you would lead us through these days, that you would protect us, and that you would help us to stay centered on you. As we have these days where we have so much extra time at home, please help us to press into you, that it would sweeten and deepen our relationships with you and with those right around us. We'll give you thanks for that as we pray these things now, Jesus, in your name.